0: Thanks for downloading UW Alumni Voices. Never before has the future of work been so uncertain. We face an never changing landscape where jobs are lost and new ones gained as industries and organisations evolve. With such uncertainty, it's imperative to build a resilient toolkit that will sustain you across roles, companies and sectors. Today's discussion Jay will draw on what he knows of the global job market to share with you what he believes to be key opportunities and challenges on the road ahead and to remind you of the most important skills you already have to meet them. If you're looking for hints to put yourself in the best possible position for growing your career listen now hey. good afternoon uh, I'm really excited I'm not very good with microphones pointing at me everywhere um, really excited to be able to spend some time with you this afternoon to talk about a few things um, really looking at the changes that have been happening to jobs in Australia and around the world and some predictions that have been made, which will affect you when looking for a new job, starting a career or changing career. And also then delving into two activities or tasks that should be able to help you uh, to compete a little more uh, when applying for jobs uh, or figuring out what you actually wanna do. When we think about the world of work, things, or right now it feels like everything is being really disruptive or disrupted. Um, We have all these different influences that affect jobs and work. There's uh, disruptors in the economy. It's forecasted that in, by 2025, most of the GDP is going to come from 440 emerging world cities that Australian business execs don't even know exist right now. Uh, which is a bit weird there's also disruptors in social political environments and things going on brexit uh, the uh, now infamous presidential campaign in the us which is underway again and of course technology is changing everything all the time but disruption isn't anything new at all particularly in australia like we can look at our own backyard to see how that has uh, been in effect for a couple of hundred years If we think about Australia, I mean the type of country that we are, a couple of hundred years ago, majority of Australians were working in agriculture. 1900s, we had 25% of people working on farms. Now, it's 3%. And it's not that we're not producing as much or growing as much, it's that we became more efficient and we're doing things in a different way. We're more productive. So we still eat a lot of food. And we still need all that food. But other jobs as well have changed. So still, let's stick with a couple of hundred years ago. You would have seen jobs existing uh, in the 19th century like this one here, which was a lamplighter. So Apparently, that's how they used to light street lamps. Uh, you'd have to be taller than me to do that or have a really long stick. Uh, this was a human alarm clock, uh, also called a knocker opera which is a bit politically incorrect these days. Uh, And if you were a young boy, uh, you pretty much had potential to be what's called a pin boy, so setting up the pins for bowling alleys. And I mean, all of these were replaced by technology, these ones, fortunately. Moving forward a little bit, we've seen other jobs just fail to exist or become endangered. Uh, switchboard operators, photo processors, uh, and bookbinders, and then we have the jobs of today: insurance underwriters, lab techs, accountants, lawyers. No one's kind of going to be untouched. Everything's going to have some level of automation or some, uh, I guess, disruption to it. So. When we think about all this disruption and and what's actually happening, there's really five key drivers that exist today that are going to affect you. And I'll run through those very quickly. The first is interconnectivity. And with this one, I'm not really talking about uh, technology and how easy it is to email everyone and talk to people all around the world. This is more around how things that happen globally affect us so significantly because we are so connected with the rest of the world now. So things like Brexit, uh, terrorist attacks in Syria, all of those will actually drive migration or movement of people to different countries. When the presidential campaign in the US was, well, when it finished, we saw an unprecedented amount of US citizens applying for Visas to go and live and work in Canada You know, so these little or not little but these things that happen in social or political uh, Situations really drive migration which affects work When people do move for work, it means that they are going to be working in jobs that you're applying for or You're going to be trying to compete with locals in other countries for their jobs That's just the way it is 10 years ago, more than 1 billion people had crossed borders for jobs, so cross-country borders. So that's absolutely huge, and five times what it was in 1980. The second driver is technology. We kind of know this one. Looking at most of you, you probably wouldn't know about a lot of the changes that technology have driven. Um, I remember when I first started, it's 20 years this year that I started in recruitment. We sat at our desks with um, phone books. And that's how we found who to call. Uh, and there was one computer. It was huge and very, very slow sitting on each team's desk. And I wasn't allowed to use it because that wasn't my job. But nowadays, technology's everywhere. We all have mobile phones. We will have access to do things very, very quickly. And it's also given rise to new jobs. So this affects work because when you have new technology and new types of jobs, you need new skills. So we're now looking for people with new skills to do these new jobs at the sake of all the jobs that require the older skills and the older professions. So we're creating challenges for ourselves. The third driver is that skills gap. Now, this is really well known in industries like healthcare. We don't have enough nurses. For example. We're training a lot of them but we have some structural challenges in terms of um, government where we're not creating enough graduate positions in many of the states across Australia and so they move and do different professions and we have this growing skills gap. We also have a supply-demand issue, we have an aging population so we have people who are getting sicker um, and who need more care and yet we don't have the people to look after them but you look at other uh, professions as well. And those skills gaps are really, really significant across a whole range, and that's globally. We have an aging workforce. Uh, So we are very concerned in a lot of industries about all these people who are about to retire because they're currently the bulk of our workforce. And then what happens? Good news is that there's all of you, And by next year, globally, it's forecast that millennials are going to make up almost 50% of the global workforce. So that's great. We've got bodies to do the work, but we're losing a lot of experience and knowledge. And whilst none of us disrespect the experience and knowledge that you're going to bring, and what's really exciting about you is you have what we call diversity of thought, You have different ways of thinking because you've grown up with technology at a different rate compared to a lot of employers. But you don't have all that knowledge and experience that's been gained from doing the job for so long and so many years. So that's a challenge that we have. And then the final one is this desire for flexibility. We no longer have this real pressing, I guess, concept of living to work. We have so many other things that we're interested in and that we are demanding to be part of our lives. Social lives, meeting up with friends, spending time with family, looking after family, having children, traveling, all this other stuff that we want along with our career. So they're the five main drivers. And then Young people and new graduates, or millennials, also have a couple of other challenges, unfortunately. Looking at Australian unemployment by age bracket, demographic, most significantly unemployment rate is for 15 to 24 year olds. Now, usually when I present this, someone says, well, not all 15-year-olds are looking for work. Um, So I have to say, this is only looking at those who are participating in the labor force. So those who are currently working or looking for work. So that's scary. If you're looking for a job, that means more people are out there competing with you. So you have to really stand out, which is tough. And then the next highest is 25 to 34-year-olds. So it doesn't really disappear as you age in the next few years either. The other challenge for you is that we are currently training you on jobs that exist right now and that have existed for the last few years particularly. That means that when you enter the workforce, well, the prediction uh, is that 70% of you who enter the workforce, your jobs are going to be radically affected by automation. So what you entered to do today or tomorrow, that job is going to be radically different very, very soon. But we've only trained you for the skills to do that job today. Also, a lot of entry-level jobs are disappearing. We don't need entry-level employees in a lot of industries anymore. So the question is, whose responsibility is it to learn the skills for the jobs of the future? Universities cannot teach you what you need for the future we don't know you know we're very often surprised by new skills that are required so whose responsibility is it is it yours to learn those is it your next employers is it the government and that's a very big question and there's a lot of um very opinionated responses out there at the moment but it's something that you need to start considering So observations of the future of work. It's kind of three big ones. Automation, of course, you'll hear about automation forever. Uh, We've been talking about it in my industry for what year is it now, 2019, so uh, well over 10 years. Uh, Often we say robots are replacing your jobs. They're not, they're just changing it. Um, Don't worry, yet. But automation is very important. Increasingly, we're creating more intelligent machines that are doing more human things. So that's how it's changing now, Uh, not all the routine stuff. Globalization, uh, where we have that global mobility of workforces, we're going to continue to see more and more of that. Uh, And it's so easy to move uh, or to use technology. And of course, multi-careers. And that's where we talk about the change in work types. So traditionally, you used to think every job was more or less full-time, permanent, or indefinite contract employment. Uh, Now it's different types of contracts, temporary work, uh, gig economy. There's side hustles, which is a big thing. Uh, There's a lot of part-time work. There's independent contracting. And people have multiple jobs all at the same time. And this has kind of grown as an effect of what businesses need for their organisations. Of course, it makes a lot of commercial sense sometimes to do it this way. But also we had from an employee's perspective, we had a problem after the last downturn with underemployment. So a lot of people had to shift back to part-time work because we reduced the number of jobs available, number of full-time jobs. That meant they had less income and they had to start to find out what to do. So they took on more and more jobs. And we call this stuff portfolio careers as well. It's not necessarily all that bad, because the opportunity here is that you start to gain a portfolio of skills and experiences that you otherwise wouldn't, compared to if you stayed at the one company for 20 years. Opportunities and risks with these three areas, there are lower barriers of entry. Not just to start in a new job, but to start your own business, to start your own venture, to be an entrepreneur. That's really exciting. And you'll probably fail, but that's okay. Because failing is the best way to learn. Um, And a lot of uh, founders of startups in Australia have failed at least once. But you'll learn and you'll do better next time. More flexibility is another opportunity, giving you that work-life balance. And broader markets and greater specialization. And by this, we talk about how a lot of companies now are not looking to give you this broad responsibility of a task. We're breaking it down into very specialized subtasks and making you experts more so than ever before. And for you, that's really exciting because it means that you're going to be in more and more demand if you're able to take advantage of that and leverage it. The risks are unemployment. If, I mean, unemployment means really the risk here is that we have this increased global mobility, people coming and taking jobs. But we also have this growing trend where we're allowing people in any country to do jobs here. for us to do jobs in any country. There's a company called Envision. if you've heard of them, a software company. They say that they've got very close to 100% of their global workforce are remote. You can be in any country, any city, and work for this huge, big organization, which is pretty cool, really, like it's pretty exciting, but it means that there's a risk of unemployment because that job is no longer based here for you to fill. Inequality, the rise of more skill. It means great, if you have that skill, you'll probably be paid more. But there's inequality and this divergence is growing amongst the unskilled workers. So if you don't have those skills, you're not going to be paid as much anymore. So it's really, really important to keep on top of developing those skills. And this comes back to whose responsibility is it? You really do need to be responsible for your own career and your own skill portfolio. And then, of course, there's insecurity. With portfolio careers and temporary work and uh, gig economy and side hustles and starting your own organization, It's really, you know, it can be really risky and a bit scary. And then we start to think, well, if all work types change to this new type of work, then what happens with minimum wages or annual leave or sick leave and all those other entitlements, maternity and paternity leave? Like all those things are going to be trade offs that you need to consider for you. Let's have a a little deeper dive into each of these. So automation, this is where we're seeing automation of, well, we're seeing more skilled workers emerging over the last 25 years. And unskilled has reduced now. Again, and I'm probably harping on about this. You are so responsible for developing these skills because if you don't you're you're going to really lose out uh, Where everyone else is going to be focused on doing it? Um, there are two categories of skill cognitive and manual and What we've seen is that in terms of automation what's easiest to replace is a non-routine in both categories so the stuff that's Um, Sorry, the hardest to replace is non-routine in both categories. Things that are the same over and over and over, of course we can try to build machines or or AI to replace those tasks. So I encourage you to identify the non-routine cognitive and manual. Examples of those of non-routine cognitive are needed in things like management, uh, healthcare, technical engineers, creatives, where things are going to be slightly different with everything that you do. But you need to think about what you're doing as well. You need that cognitive ability and that cognitive training. The non-routine manual skills are more in service-based professions. Hospitality, uh, waiters. It'd be interesting to see a robot waiter respond to an unhappy customer uh, because human beings are very unpredictable when we're angry, particularly. Uh, Also, aged care and protective services like security and the likes. Globalization. You just really need to stand out. But also be open to moving around. At any one time, there's around a million Australians who are living and working overseas. And there was a survey done of uh, 200,000 individuals worldwide. And it was found that 2 thirds of them are currently or about to embark on living and working overseas. So that means that you're going to have to compete. I strongly encourage you to have an international experience. It's fantastic for cultural reasons, uh, to be exposed to different ways of doing things. But this comes with a warning. Uh, And Indeed, we just did a survey in uh, partnership with a company called Advance, who help Australians come back to Australia after they've moved and worked overseas. And we found that over 80% of Australians returning to Australia after having worked overseas found it more difficult to get a job here. So we talked to a whole bunch of different companies and recruiters, and a third of them said that they would not consider international experience and that they actually would put more preference over candidates who had stayed in country because they felt that those who had, re- had gone and returned weren't as up to date with current affairs happening in Australia or weren't able to deal with the cultural Uh, challenges in Australia which is rubbish it's you know it's pretty rubbish but that's where you have to educate and I'm going to give you some tips on, on how to start doing that it's really really important the biggest I guess helpful tip if you do go overseas and you come back whilst you're overseas make sure that you build and manage your networks here So professional networks, you've all studied with others who are going to be staying here. So stay in touch. Learn off each other. They're part of your professional network now, because it's those people who are going to help you get a job when you get back, most often than not. And then multi-careered. Try different things. Don't get stuck in the one career forever. Like That's boring. Um, No offense to anyone. Um, I've been in mine for 20 years, so I offended myself. But try different things. Why not? Who cares? It's not one job for life anymore. In fact, it's forecast that you'll have 17 jobs over five careers. So start thinking about what else there is. There's no harm. So what's next? I'm going to give you two different We'll run through two activities that are very, very helpful when you are looking for a new job or applying for a job, starting a new career, or considering changing career already, which there's nothing wrong with whatsoever. So the first is looking at interviewing. It's really important because you're in the most competitive category in terms of your age group. So you have to be really good at this. I'm going to talk about this because I've been interviewing people since 1999. um, And right now, I'm interviewing for two jobs. And there are, I mean, nothing's changing uh, in terms of responses that we hear from candidates. So if you can change and stand out, that'll be great. You, You know, you'll actually become more competitive in market. And the second is trying to figure out what you actually want to do. Okay. So interviews are really interesting things. We tend to ask the same questions in every interview year upon year upon year. It's always the same. Things like, tell me about a time when you failed. What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Tell me about your work history. Uh, Tell me about the style of management you like. All of this stuff we already know as hirers. We can see this on your resume if you wrote a cover letter. We see it on there usually. We can extrapolate enough information. If you went through a phone screening exercise or some sort of assessment, we get all of this. We kind of just waste time. But, and I'm guilty of this, I still ask them. Like I know these are the wrong questions. I still ask these in every single interview. What I'm looking for are candidates who have put more thought into their responses. It's fine to have responses to this, but I'm looking for candidates who have thought beyond these, these answers or beyond these questions. So in thinking about those questions, this is how you can start to think beyond. And it might seem at first that an answer you have to a question like this is a bit uh, obtuse compared to the original question, but it's not. This answers the original question and more and makes you memorable and makes you stand out. So things like what experience in your past did you grow from most replaces tell me about a time when you failed. I don't want to know the detail about how you failed and why you failed. I want to know what you grew from, how did you grow from it, and what did you actually get out of that experience? The detail around what you failed at, it doesn't matter. What are you good at that isn't on your resume? So this replaces what are your strengths, because it's not all about work. Think about everything else that there is, because I've got your resume. I can read it. How do you go about self-reflection and growth? This addresses weaknesses. Now, when I first started recruiting, we used to give advice to candidates and job applicants and say, when someone asks you what your weaknesses are, choose a a strength and just kind of make it sound like a weakness, but actually you're really good at it. Yeah, that doesn't really work. What we want to see here is you doing an exercise of reflection. We all have weaknesses. And we can either completely ignore them, or we can spend the time to develop ourselves and own that weakness. And when you answer that question, tell us what you're developing. So don't say my weakness is. Say, actually, right now I'm working on this, which you might see as a weakness, but I see this as an amazing opportunity to grow and get better at what I do. What career path have you taken that has led you to this job? This is instead of that awful question of tell me about your work history. Because and this is a hard one because sometimes it's not linear anymore. We don't climb that traditional corporate ladder. So you may do all different things. You may have had part time or casual jobs as well. Everything matters. So pick out the skills and experiences that are relevant for the job that you're interviewing for and talk to those. Map it out before you go into the interview so that you can see it in your head as well. And then instead of talking about the management style that you're best suited to, which often the response is, well, I don't like micromanagement, think about a leader that inspired you and helped you grow and why, why they did that. And this doesn't need to be a leader in a workplace or in a job. This can be a leader anywhere because they will have, or or you'll be able to identify that component of leadership that really helped you, that really helped you develop and grow into something bigger and better at what you do. Before you go into an interview, go through a process of reflection as well. What kind of work do you find meaningful? What was the best day you ever had at work? Were you working alone in a group? Were you trying to help solve a problem or learning something? Because we'll ask questions. Do you prefer working on your own or in groups? Well, why? Put some reflective effort into this. Really understand how you thrive in the work environment, because that's what we need to know. What's the best type of recognition you've received? Why was it impactful? What was it for? And what have other people noticed that you do well? This one's really helpful for when you're struggling to understand your strengths. But also, often, we don't see everything that we're good at. If we start paying attention to what other people notice that we do well, we can really identify some strengths that we didn't know existed and start to maximize on those. Okay. So then we move to this concept of true north. And um, regardless of where you are in terms of your career or how many jobs that you've had, you've probably hated a Monday. I've hated many Mondays. Uh, And in fact, it's, it's, it's not just in Australia or certain professions. In Sweden, they did a piece of research that showed on Mondays there was an elevated risk of heart attack amongst workers. Because Mondays suck. You know, you have a really good weekend and then you've got to go back in. But wouldn't it be great to not hate Mondays? I mean, to actually do a job that you love, that you want to go into the office for, or whatever your workplace uh, is, that would be the ideal. When we're happy in our job and when it's kind of aligned to a passion and what we want to do, we're actually 500% more productive. We want to do the work and we do it really, really well. And it's not just good for your employer or the company that you're working for, it's good for you because you feel good about it. You're achieving things and you're you know, hitting goals. So how do we get to a job that we like or a career that we really, really like? Because if you've just graduated, there is a chance that you've done a degree that you're not passionate about anymore, uh, or you're going to start working in that career, and after a few years, you find you've got a passion elsewhere. And that's fine. We, we all do that. I mean, I've studied a whole range of things, like calculus, pharmacy, health communication. I'm a nurse as well. That was a stupid one. Um, I mean, it's not for me. But you keep going back. Why not? And you keep looking for a passion. Now, to help you do it a lot more, a lot more efficiently and inexpensively compared to me, I, I'm going to look at a place with you where people live longer than any other place in the world. So it's, if we take a little road trip, it's in a place called Okinawa in Japan. And it's a place where people live longer than anywhere else on the planet. Because embedded in culture there, there's this idea that their reason for being or their sense of purpose should be reflected in their work and their contributions to society. Uh, They believe that work should give them so much joy that they don't or shouldn't have to believe in retirement because work shouldn't feel like an obligation. And it kind of feeds into the identity of who they are as human beings. The concept, this reason for being, uh, and you've probably heard of it, it's very fashionable right now, is called Ikigai. It's a, I mean, at first it's it's an odd sounding word as well. Um, ikigai, it's kind of. F- I mean, it's talking about something really pleasurable as well, and to say it right, you've kind of got a smile, as you say, ikigai. But the first time I was introduced to it was by a colleague who's one of those people who's always excited, like you need a good old rest after five minutes being around him. He's excited about absolutely everything. Everything's amazing. Everything's wonderful. He was talking about this, and I thought, oh, here we go again. Um, But then he kept talking, and I thought, this is kind of interesting. And I started to read about it. And in the first book that I read was this quote, that there's a passion inside you, a unique talent that gives meaning to your days and drives you to share the best of yourself until the very end. So if you don't know what your ikigai is yet, your mission is to discover it. So I'm going to step you through very, very briefly, because, I mean, you can read big books on this stuff, uh, of how to do this. Because ideally, we want to love what we do. And if we don't love it right now, we want to figure out what we're going to love in terms of what we're going to do next. So first thing, we need to figure out what we're good at. If you have a pen and paper, try to start making a list. This can be anything. Don't think of the job that you're good at or the career that you're good at. Think of all the things that you're good at. And we're all good at stuff, all of us. So start writing them down. Next thing, think about what you love. I mean, there's a really awful motivational poster, do what you love and you'll never do a day of work. But I mean, as cringy as that is, that'd be pretty cool to do something that you love each and every single day. But first, we need to figure out what we do love. Third, think about what the world needs. It's fine to know what you're good at, to know what you love. But if no one needs it, it's going to be tough. The good news is that the world needs pretty much everything. You've just got to figure out how it's classified, what it's called, and how to contribute to that need. It's not just a skill as well. It's not just lawyers and accountants and uh, you know, bankers and nurses and engineers. It's also the natural talents uh, that the world needs. So music ability, poets, athletes, people who are just good at math, but you know, don't work in that profession. The world needs everything. And then, we, I mean, we have to earn money. Um, and we're talking about jobs. so. Figure out what you can get paid for, because you do need to continue to survive, support families, all of that, go traveling, buy stuff. So then we um, actually look at the intersecting points. And this is your ikigai. So if you figure out what you love and what you're good at, that's your passion. And an example there might be cooking. I really like to cook. I'm pretty good at it. Like No one's actually thrown a plate at me or anything. I really like to do it, but I'm not going to get paid for it. It's not that good. So it's not going to be my ikigai. If we look at the intersection between doing what you're good at and what you can get paid for, then that's a profession, intersection between what you can get paid for and what the world needs, that's more of a vocation. And we'll get to that in a minute, differentiating vocation from profession. And if you look at the intersection of what you love and what the world needs, that's more of a mission. In terms of doing what you're good at and what you love, I mean, and that's my cooking, you feel satisfied but a bit useless because no one's going to pay for it. I mean, they only eat it because they like me or because I've invited them over and they're kind of trapped and obligated. But it's not going to be a job. What you're paid for, what you're good at, your profession, you could be comfortable but feel empty. Just because you're good at being an accountant and you get paid for it, probably paid quite well, doesn't mean it's fulfilling. You might have this com- like emptiness associated because you just don't have that passion and drive to do it. Looking at, voca- uh, at what the world needs and what you get paid for, excitement and complacency, but uncertainty. Now, the difference between vocation and profession, which is a little bit tricky to grasp sometimes, profession is something that you're trained to do, like an accountant. A vocation is more of a calling. So you feel this drive to actually have to do that job. Um, There's a bit of crossover sometimes. So nursing is usually a vocation and a profession, but often it's very vocation driven. Um, I remember when I embarked on my degree to become a nurse, uh, all of the other students around me used to say, oh, this is my calling. And you know, I'm so excited. And I thought, what, what are they talking about? I'm just doing it because I'm kind of interested. I think I watch too many medical shows or something. But you have this real natural drive to do that, and that's a vocation. And then if we look at doing what you love and what the world needs, more of that mission, there can be real delight and, and fulfillness, but no wealth because you're probably not going to get paid for it. So ideally, we want to hit all of these. And when we do that, that's what your ikigai actually is. This is really hard. It needs a lot of thought. But if you can do this, it's going to drive you to try new things. And you have to be very, very brave to do this. It might mean going back to uni. And you might go back part-time while you're working in whatever your career is now. That's fine. People do that. A friend of mine had a family, has uh, adult children now, and she went back and did her JD part-time, her Juris Doctor. And she's now a lawyer, which is great. Uh, There's usually a lot of fear around doing this stuff though because there's fear that if we do all of that we throw all of our Training our education off to the side and disregard it and that's rubbish Whatever you've learnt you're going to use forever At university you don't just learn what's in your textbooks or what you wrote in essays or how difficult group work is and that there's always going to be someone who doesn't pull their weight. But you learn how to leverage each other, how to work with other people, work with people from different cultures, cultures, different belief systems. You learn about deadlines. There'll be a lot of deadlines forever, trust me. You learn about stress. There'll be a lot of stress forever too. But all of that stuff that you've learned, you're going to take to your next career or your next degree, but it will carry through for the rest of your life. There's also a fear when we think about changing careers or going back to uni, that when you graduate, you're going to start at the bottom of the ladder again. You know, your salary probably will shift, it might go down, but this is where we think about that payoff between doing something that you love this time around and feeling great, or getting paid a bit more and being miserable. So that's, they're the considerations that you need to have. And trust me, there is always a solution to this stuff. You've just got to find it. So in summary of this, there's, um, these are the three sort of buckets that are affecting work right now, and that will continue in the near future. Automation. Focus on the technical skills, but don't ignore soft skills. It's really important. Soft skills, emotional intelligence is so important. There's a Harvard report uh, quite a few years ago now that said emotional intelligence is more important than IQ. You can be the smartest person in the room, but if you don't know how to relate to other people and work with other people, then you're not going to be successful. And a company or an employer is not going to want to hire you. We don't want people to join our businesses that are going to disrupt everyone else and the work that they do. So it's really important to identify what emotional intelligence is and how you can develop that. One of the biggest complaints that we hear of new graduates going in and starting in a, in a role in a company is that they enter thinking they know too much, or they already know the way the world is. You've learned a lot, you really, really have, and we respect that. University is hard, really hard work. But actually doing the job in a real world context, there are so many variables that are happening all around you, not just in the industry or the job that you do, but with the people around you as well. And if you go in thinking you know it all, it's going to be the quickest way that you fail. So humility is really important. The other key thing for you to know is what you don't know. So many of us go into jobs and we think we know everything and you don't, no one knows everything. The best thing that you can do is not to know everything, know some things really, really well. You can be expert at some things, but then be an expert at knowing who to leverage and who to tap into, whether it be people or resources to find out what you don't know. And that's how you become a very productive and very strong employee. So automation, it's very important for technical skills, but also soft skills, communication, leadership, resilience, humility, all of those things. Really, really key. Globalization, learn to collaborate, uh, learn to stand out because it's tough. People are moving here, you're moving overseas, people are doing jobs based here from overseas and vice versa. It's getting really, really difficult. So learn how to start to integrate into this new global world. And then finally, be multi-career. Like, you don't have to have one career anymore. Who cares? It's your life. Do whatever you like. Have 10 careers. Although we say it'll only be five. But try new things. Be brave. Find out what you actually want to do and what's going to make you happy because your happiness is for you to own, not anyone else. In terms of what you can do tomorrow, interviewing is really, really important. So please work on that. Write down some answers, practice. Practice with friends. That's really, really good, because it gives you more confidence, and we can see that you put effort in. Think about extending the questions or extending your answers to give more information to really impress the recruiter or the hiring manager. Like if you do that, you stand out, we remember you. And remember it's super competitive. Uh, Self reflect and consider new and different opportunities. Your degree doesn't necessarily mean you have to do that job. Your degree can translate into a whole different range of other jobs. Uh, For example, I keep going back to nursing, but it's easy. Friends of mine who did the nursing degree, they're working for medical software companies because they have the medical or clinical knowledge to be able to help advise on how to build certain parts of the software for nurses who are practicing to use that software. Um, others going to research, others going to teaching or education or training. So think about all the other things that you can do as well, which you might be more aligned to or more passionate about. And of course, define your own ikigai. And this as I said, it's really hard work but find out what your purpose is and what you really, really want to do. You don't have to start doing that tomorrow, but have an idea about it and put together a plan to work towards it. Apart from the fact that it's ikigai, not ikigai, (laughs) as as someone who speaks Japanese, Why should we be forced to have multiple careers when if there are problems, we need to have that experience over time to actually make lasting change? For example, if we're going to deal with climate change, having a career in that field is gonna be something that you're setting up for life. Yeah, not everyone's passionate about that. So you don't have to have multiple careers. If you find what yours should be in the beginning, fantastic. You've beaten a lot of us to it. You don't have to have multiple careers. It's forecast that people in your demographic will have five. That's an average. Uh, my demographic, definitely not supposed to have five, but you know, I've pushed it and a lot of my friends have pushed it too. So if you find what you want to do first and it's sustainable, absolutely just do that.